0: Good evening, if you would turn your Bibles with me to uh, Second Thessalonians chapter 3. <clears throat> Tonight we'll be talking about confidence, a way of thinking, particularly about ministering to people. And uh, as Laura was mentioning, <clears throat> hand motions It occurred to me, I do not have a lot of confidence in my own memory and ability to memorize things. So if you ever need to memorize the Ten Commandments and you want to see hand motions, I'd be happy to share because that's really what helped me remember them. I need that. I, I uh, was not really able to memorize them effectively until I someone taught me the hand motions. So if you ever want to see those, maybe you can come and join us. In any job or, or in any accomplishment or profession or um, athletic achievement or anything like that, we all tend to operate with a certain level of confidence placed in something. Maybe you think, well, I'm not a very confident person. Uh, Well, hang with me. Um, Some of us, maybe this is you, you just have a lot of self-confidence and you've never seen a problem that you didn't think you could handle. And you would just jump in because of course I can solve this. I've solved every one of my problems in the past. Maybe you have a lot of confidence in your innate abilities, your abilities to solve problems or to fix things or whatever it is. Maybe when you come up to some big task, you realize, okay, my confidence is not in my ability to do this, but I know that I practice this a thousand times, right? So much so that I cannot get it wrong. And your confidence is in, okay, I got this right. I'm relying on my, on my practice, my success before the performance, or maybe, maybe you've heard people say this kind of thing. Well, I've just been coached really well. I know that I had a good teacher and someone taught me the right things. And if I just do what he taught me, then I know I'm not going to be led astray. They're, these are all expressions of confidence in something. Yourself, uh, some practice that you've done, some person that's taught you. Maybe you have a wealth of experience and you're able to draw on your own resources somehow. I know someone uh, in my family who does not think that uh, they're very intelligent or something like that, but they are just very savvy with people, and they can really uh, relate to people in a really remarkable way. They might they don't think they have a lot of confidence, but they should have a lot of confidence in their experience and the gifts that the Lord has given them. But I think you can imagine, and maybe you've known this, it's hard to press forward and to keep going in any kind of effective way if you don't have much confidence that you're doing the right thing or that you're, have any, you have any uh, hope of a good outcome, if you don't have any assurance of these things, it's hard to keep going. I think we understand this just by human experience. Well, in ministry, in ministering with people, in working with people, doing spiritual work, discipling, evangelizing, count, counseling, we also have confidence. And it better not be in ourselves. It can be, but it should be in the Lord. Paul, as you read and you become acquainted with his life and his career and his ministry, he has opportunities to defend and talk about and kind of give a a description and a, a defense of his ministry. And he's often saying, my confidence is not in the flesh. My confidence is not in my earthly wisdom or my oratorical skills or my impressive appearance as some people wanted him to take confidence in those things no paul's confidence was in the lord and he he took confidence that christ was alive that he was carrying a true message and that as christ was exalted in people's eyes god would draw men to himself he was confident in the lord you certainly see this as we come to the last chapter of second thessalonians In the first five verses, Paul expresses in three different ways really his confidence in the Lord. He's talking about confidence in God concerning partnership in the ministry. And I want you to see this in the first five verses of chapter 3. He's talking about those who he evangelized, he gathered, saw gathered into a church, he and his team. He's been chased off from them, but now he's really entrusting them to the Lord, and he sees them as Capable of doing that same thing, starting other churches, evangelizing others, discipling others. And he's committing them to the Lord. He can't be with them, but he's confident in the Lord. And he uses that word once in verse 4. But you see the by his prayer, by his descriptions, that his confidence is not in himself. His confidence is not even in them, but in their Lord, who watches over both of them. Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. He has confidence in the Lord as he requests prayer to the Lord for them and their ministry of the word. We need the Lord to work. The Lord will help us pray for us. He has confidence in the Lord in them that they will remain faithful to the Lord as God protects them and strengthens them against the evil one, and as God strengthens them to obey and not turn from him. And then in his his wish there, his his benediction, you could say, his prayer in verse 5, he's confident in the Lord to keep them spiritually and to nourish them on what they need to continue on. And this really is for us at all stages of ministering with people. We're talking about partners in the ministry. This is initially as you evangelize people. What is your confidence? Is it in the Lord? This is as someone is saved and as you're discipling them and you want to see them grow. What is your confidence in? Is it in your amazing teaching ability and your ability to teach everything in correct pedagogy, in correct order, and the exact right thing? Or is it in the Lord to do what he knows is best in them? But then maybe as you send someone out and they're no longer with you and they're kind of flying on their own and they're discipling others, what is your confidence for them? Is it like was prayed in the Old Testament? May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Our confidence (laughs) must be in the Lord. Really what happens if we don't is we end up failing because What we're doing is we're relying on our own resources. Our confidence isn't in the Lord. We're shouldering this ourselves, and we will become burnt out. This is a way of thinking. And what is the way of thinking? Well, consider this tonight. Take confidence in God when ministering to others, because he watches over you. He watches over you. He watches over those that you're ministering to. Take confidence in him, because he's watching over you. I think you can understand these verses in that way. God is overseeing everything that is crucial to success in the ministry. You see first as Paul requests, he's prayed for them, but he's now requesting prayer. What is he asking that they pray about? He's praying, asking for prayer, and no doubt he himself is praying about the ministry of the word, first of all. The Lord watches over the ministry of of the word. And you see in verses 1 and 2, he's watching over the seed of the word and also the sower of the word. He's watching over both. The Lord watches over the ministry of the word. He really does, doesn't he? He has to bless the ministry of the word because men naturally have hard hearts. Finally, brethren, pray for us. There's a huge emphasis in this verse on the word pray. That's the main need. We need God to work. We need you to intercede for us to God work, for, for God to work. Because if God is not working, we will have no success. Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. You may have a note in your margin that the word of the Lord will run. The idea of being run unhindered, run without tripping or being restricted in any way. That the word of the Lord would run and that the word of the Lord would be glorified. And he makes a comparison here, just as it did also with you. So what does he mean? Is he saying pray that God's word would run and that it would be honored? Well, what did it look like with the Thessalonians? Paul came and preached. And how did these people demonstrate that God's word had free course and that they honored it? It's as they submitted to it and obeyed the gospel, isn't it? as they gave God's word the attention and the, the glory that it deserved, Paul really is interested in the free and the swift advance of the gospel in the world. He's His heart prayer is, Lord, your kingdom, come. He's praying about the advance of God's word. This is his burning ambition, his his great desire that God would work by his word to turn people from sin to the Savior. This is something we ought to pray about, because if God is blessing the preaching and the spread of his word, it will have this effect. Is that your desire? As God's word is preached here, preached wherever you are, as it's distributed when we go out, Lord willing, tomorrow, and we're handing out door hangers and we're talking to people and there's a gospel message on there and there's connection to gospel resources. Lord, let your word run. And be honored. May may people who have never heard of you, people who may have rejected you, show you and your word the honor it deserves. When God's word is preached, it can be free to work or it can be hindered. Certainly what the Jews were trying to do in Paul's day, isn't it? They tried to shut him up permanently. Even the Jews in Thessalonica, they stirred up a mob. They wanted to beat him to death. They wanted to silence him. The Jews were hindering the work, but it could not be hindered, no doubt because people were praying that it would spread. And when it is spread, men can either pay it honor by turning from sin and obeying God, or they can dishonor the word of God by resisting it and slandering it and opposing it, either in their hearts or in their words or in their actions. You can dishonor the word of God. Paul is praying that God would be glorified and that his word would be honored. We must pray that God would use his word in a mighty way to save men's souls. Does God hear that prayer? Yes, he does. James one eighteen says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. If we were to go back to Acts 17, and we won't take the time to do that, but when Paul is in Thessalonica, forming, seeing this church formed as God is saving people, it is, it's the Jews who are rejecting and resisting the word of God and the minister of God. They're persecuting them. There are some who believe, but there's great resistance to the gospel and the spread of the gospel. But I think the point is, even from Acts 17, It's spreading, and it's God who's making it spread. So pray to the Lord that he would bless the ministry of the Word. Because not only does God have to work in men's hearts to bring life by the Word, but he's the one who sustains the messenger, too. This is what happened among this group. And, Paul says, verse 2, pray that we will be rescued. We, Paul, Silas, Timothy that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. God has to deliver the minister of the word, because men naturally hate the message. Paul's requesting for this for himself and his team. Likely he's writing from Corinth. Do you remember what happened in Corinth? If you turn back to Acts chapter 18, this is just a few stops ahead of where he was in Thessalonica. He went to Berea, and the Jews followed him there. He went to Athens, and he was stirred, and he preached at Mars Hill, and then he went to Corinth. That's where he found Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla. and he was working as a tent maker with them. What are these perverse and evil men in Corinth? Look in verse 5. You see indication that Silas and Timothy seem to be coming from Thessalonica giving the good report that occasioned Paul's writing of this letter. Verse 5, Acts 18, verse 5, When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a uh, worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And God tells him, stay there, I'm with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. He was there for 18 months, verse 11, teaching the word of God among them. but. Verse 12, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And what did they do? These perverse and evil men. They took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul stays there, eventually goes to Ephesus. How's that for perverse and evil? These men are beating a. Uh, a fellow citizen in front of a Roman ruler just because they can, and he won't listen to their religious dispute. They're out of place. They're actively unrighteous. This is no doubt Paul is talking about the Jews. And why is this? For not all have faith, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is what was happening in Paul's day, but when you think throughout the history of the church, you know that the devil has opposed the spread of the word of God, and he has attacked the ministers of God throughout all of history, hasn't he? I mean, if you start at a time like the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and you think about men like Martin Luther, and the opposition he faced from the Pope, and from the Catholic Church, or a man like William Tyndale, there were men who were perverse and evil, befriending him, trying to get into his inner circle just so they could betray him and hinder the spread of the word of God. This is the devil's work. It's what he does. So Paul is praying because he knows he's going to face this. He knows he's living it right now. But who can he trust? Who is watching over him is the Lord. Pray. That the word of the Lord will be spread rapidly and be glorified, and that we will be rescued. How do you think Paul thinks he will be rescued? He doesn't know how exactly it's going to happen, but if it's going to happen, he knows it has to be the Lord who's going to do it. For not all have faith. This really is a way, it's a wonderful way. Matthew Henry said, Those who are at a great distance may meet together at the throne of grace. No doubt it was sad. For Paul at times to leave these believers and know there was a chance he would never return, never see them again. You see that in Acts 20. We looked at it this morning. We may look at it later this evening. There's great grief among these believers in Ephesus who knew him and loved him. And they longed to be with him. And it it, it made them sad when he would leave. But here, these believers in Thessalonica, though no, though Paul was not near them, what Matthew Henry is saying, and I think is true, we can come a long way and cross long distances and meet at the throne of grace. Praying for one another is how we can stay connected when we're apart, because we have the same God and same Lord. God watches over all his children. So when you're ministering to other people, you can trust that God shepherds them too. And it may be especially unsettling when there are people opposing you and opposing your message and and persecuting you and resisting you. It's not just you, it's the Lord. But Paul really contrasts the Lord to them. Not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. God is greater than those who may oppose you and are faithless. He is totally different from them. And you can trust him for that reason too, not only because he's watching over the ministry of the word, the the sower of the word and the seed of the word, but also God watches over the frailties of his sheep. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. When I say the frailties of his sheep, God is watching over. I think Paul, what Paul is describing really is this classic three that we often refer to, the world, the flesh, and the devil, in a little bit of a different order. The world, the devil, and our flesh. The Lord is faithful, unlike those faithless men. God will protect you from the faithless ones. God is eternally faithful to us. Amid evil men. Though some will oppose you because they don't believe, God is unchangingly faithful. And though you can know for sure that you will meet opposition from those who do not know God and do not love him. Yet you can know that God will never leave you or forsake you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And I am with you even at the end of the age, Jesus said. But not only does God stand in total contrast to treacherous enemies of the gospel, but he really shows it by protecting them and protecting them not just from faithless men, but from the evil, the evil one. The Lord is faithful who will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. will strengthen you in your faith to resist the assaults of the devil. Think of Job in his loss, and the devil is assaulting him, trying to make an example of him before God and before all the hosts of the angels. God, you're not worth it. You're just buying him off. God strengthened his faith. Think about Peter. And Satan demanded Peter to sift him like wheat. Yet Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus strengthened his faith against the assault of the devil think of jesus himself when he's being tempted god strengthened him he took strength from the word of god james 4 7 says submit therefore to god resist the devil and he will flee from you yes resist the devil and he will free from from you but this verse is saying it's not all on you god will strengthen you god will protect you from the devil's attacks not that they will never come to you because they may God is the one, after all, who raised Job up and drew the devil's attention to him. But yet God strengthened him. Think of Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den and, and pursued by men of wickedness. God protected him there. Think of Esther who faced wicked Haman, who had all the power in the kingdom. Yet God turned everything on its head and delivered Mordecai and the Jews. The devil is an enemy we can't see, an enemy who is ruthless and cruel and shrewd and a coward, but very powerful, more powerful than you or I on our own. God knows that we're weak. God knows that we're sheep. And he helps us. He covers you. But it's not just external enemies that are aligned against God. The faithless that God stands in contrast to. The devil who would love to undo you that God will strengthen you against and protect you. But there's also a traitor within, isn't there? I believe this is what Paul is talking about in verse 4. That God helps us obey him despite our sinful flesh. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Paul has confidence, or he is persuaded in them, no, in the Lord, about something. Or perhaps this could be translated because of something. What was Paul persuaded about these people and their walk with God? He saw in their life evidence of something. And what was that evidence? It was the obedience to apostolic command in the present. And he had confidence that that was going to go on into the future. In other words, Paul is comforted about these believers because he sees God's people obeying God's commands. Do you see that? We have confidence in the Lord about you. Why? Because you are doing and will continue to do what we command. We, Paul is an apostle. When he gives a command, it has the weight of one of God's chosen apostles. And now Paul's commands are actually recorded in Scripture. So you see the weight that they have. This isn't an ordinary command that he's giving, an ordinary command that they are obeying. It really is a command from the Lord himself that these people are obeying. That's why I say God's people are obeying God's commands. And that comforts Paul. Why? Well, it's because the surest signs of spiritual well-being are obedience and turning from sin. Maybe you could flip the order. And if you were in Christian Life Hour downstairs this morning, this is a little bit of a double barrel of that message. A dear, godly, elderly couple that uh, was part of our lives around the time we were married. They were meeting Jen and I before we got married. And they had just visited Four Corners, USA. Familiar with this? The monument where where the borders of four states come together at uh, a corner right here, Four Corners, USA. It's Utah and Colorado and New Mexico and uh, Arizona, where all of these meet out west. You can go there and you can be in all four states at one time if you use all four of your limbs, right? This couple made a statement that I really struck me and stuck with me they compared that to the christian life and christian maturity and they were saying that obeying god in the christian life isn't so much about never getting on the wrong side of the line of sin because we all sin that of course that's the goal little children i write to you that you do not sin if anyone sins this is what john is saying in first john it's not so much about never getting on the wrong side of the line. They were just reflecting about, oh, I'm in Arizona. Now I'm in New Mexico. Now I'm in Colorado. You can do this, okay? It's not so much about, I never get on the wrong side of the line, because we do. We do get stuck. We often get into sin. Sometimes we even flounder in it. What really defines the Christian life, though, and Christian maturity is getting back on the right side. And the more mature you become in the Christian life, you realize how often you do sin, but how God is faithful always to forgive if you turn from your sin. And as you become more mature and more sensitive to the Lord's leading, you realize, oh, Lord, that is wrong. Please forgive me. And instead of wallowing in your sin for a couple days, it's, Lord, I want to turn from that. Help me to turn from that right now. But we can get stuck, can't we? Of course we can. But as you grow, you realize the best thing to do is to keep a short account with God and to turn from sin as soon as you see it. And then really, as you do that, you grow in your ability to watch out for it and to guard from it, to watch over your heart to avoid it. So do you view yourself as this kind of growing Christian, more and more attentive to sin, quicker and quicker to turn from sin and turn to righteousness? If you see yourself as a growing Christian, ask yourself, am I obeying God? That's really the test. Am I obeying God? And if I'm not, am I turning from sin so that I can obey God? God helps us obey Him despite our evil flesh. I think that's what Paul is drawing attention to you. We have attention to here. We have confidence in the Lord. That's where his confidence is about you because we see evidence of healthy Christian living. We see you obeying the Lord. When there's not that evidence, there's no confidence in the Lord about you. Do you understand what Paul is saying? If he saw a church that was composed of people who were not obeying God's word, Paul would have no confidence in the Lord about them. He would not be persuaded in the Lord that they really are Christians. But as they were obeying God's command, it was a great comfort to him. And he was certain, God, that's your work. I know it has to be because it's not natural to them. So I would encourage you, if you are walking in a way of obedience, praise the Lord for that. And realize that has an effect on people who are watching your life. That's part of living together as a body and encouraging one another is as others observe the obedience of your life and they realize, Lord, you're doing that in their life. Help me to do that too. But if you're living in a pattern of sin, whether or not people know it or know specifically what it is, if you're not walking in active obedience to the commands of God, that's a concern that removes confidence among the people of God. That you are right with God. But God will help you obey him. We all have this traitor living within us. We all do. There's not one of us in this room that's an exception to that. But it's a matter of what you're doing with it. Are you walking in the flesh? Walk by the Spirit, Paul says, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Is the Spirit of God in you? then ask the Lord to help you obey him. If you're engaged in spiritual ministry with others, evangelizing, discipling, counseling, raising children, encouraging people, confronting sin, take heart in the truth that God is watching over you. He oversees his word as you proclaim it. And as you sow the seed... You can't do anything about the seed anymore. God's watching over that seed. God is watching over you, the sower of that seed. He sees your heart and what would ail you and afflict you or keep you from obeying him, and he protects you and he strengthens you. But finally, and very quickly, the Lord watches over the nourishment of his sheep. The Lord watches over the nourishment of his sheep. And you see Paul's confidence as he prays for this. May the Lord. Direct your mind, direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. It's like Green Meadow 1 and Green Meadow 2 for God's sheep. What are you going to feed yourself on? Feed on this, the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And may God, your shepherd, lead you into that pasture, what Paul is saying. The Lord comforts us with the Father's love. Maybe you're a, a flowers and notes kind of person. Maybe you're a, a toilets and floors kind of person or a steak and potatoes kind of person, whatever it is that you see that it's like, whoa, that person loves me. Wow. Have you ever been shown love that just humbled you and overwhelmed you and filled you with joy and thankfulness? Perhaps as a child, you were given something you really wanted and you just saw your parents' pleasure in giving it to you and you knew. Man, they love me. I love you, Mom. Thank you. That's what I've always wanted. Or maybe you've had somebody just observe you, see your burdens and your challenges, and then just go out of their way to give you a break, to clear your head, to give you some time to get back to work, and then to help you relax, help you have fun, all because they love you. Have you ever experienced this kind of just, man, they really love God's love is better than that. All of it combined. God looked down on this world. He saw our sinful condition. He knew our suffering under sin. He knew our certain destruction that was coming upon us as we toiled in slavery. And he engaged in a rescue mission that none of us even knew that we needed. We sang a song in VBS. We have all sinned in Adam. And yet God loved us before we loved or knew him. And he made a way for us to know him. This is the love of God. And his love endures forever. His loving kindness. Never fails. That is love vast as the ocean, isn't it? Loving kindness as the flood, yes. As the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, God made a way to save your eternal soul from eternal damnation and destruction. That is love. And then how many ways and times has he showed you love in your life since then to lead you and guide you and bless you? May the Lord direct your heart into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. The Lord comforts us with the Father's love, but the Lord supports us by the Christ's perseverance what is the perseverance of christ hebrews 12:3 says for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart what happens when you eat the grass in this meadow when you set your mind on christ who endured slander and persecution and lies and defamation and resistance and rejection and betrayal and he endured what do you get You get better than Elijah's food that kept him for 40 days and 40 nights. You have spiritual endurance as you feed on that. Jesus' perseverance is a holy perseverance. It is mighty. It was long in time. It was wide in the scope of human experience. And it was flawless. And it's our example to look to and to meditate on and to hope for and to long for. So what? Well, Paul isn't praying, may the Lord love you and help you persevere. He's saying, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. He's asking God, he's asking that God would help them meditate on things that have already been done. He's asking God to feed them on these things, to nourish them on these marvelous truths, Why the love of God? Do you think it ever felt to the Thessalonians when they lost their job, when someone got treated illegally? Do you think it ever felt like God forsook them or God was being cruel to them? Maybe. When there's pressure and pressure and pressure and they come to the next Monday morning and, Lord, I can't do it again. I can't do it. What does it do? to set your mind on the steadfastness of Christ who endured this against himself and endured, Hebrews 12:3. consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the difference that it makes. We have comfort, we have assurance, we have strength that we would not have if it weren't for Christ and for God. Who can separate us from the love of God? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. It's really a beautiful, wonderful refrain that he comes to. Romans eight thirty one. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, how's this for confidence? That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus' Lord. That is nourishment. That is a feast for the sheep of God. And God is watching over that. Take confidence in God when ministering to other people because he is watching over you. As you minister the word, he's watching over you, the minister of it. He sees where the seed falls. He's in control of the soil that it falls on. He will bless it. Pray, pray that he would. He's watching over your frailties. He knows that the devil would destroy you if he could. He knows that the world is no friend to grace and would lead you off and captivate you. He knows that you have a sinful flesh and you long for redemption. So obey him, obey, turn from sin, run to Christ. The Lord watches over you. And the Lord watches over your nourishment too. You ever talk to a dietitian? They come in and say, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to eat. Here's what you need to think about. This is how you're going to get healthy. God watches over your nourishment. He's your shepherd. He has an interest in your well-being. And he comforts you with his own love. And he strengthens you as you meditate on the steadfastness of Christ who endured contradiction of sinners, opposition against him, and he never failed. May the Lord Help us and give us confidence. Maybe first to step up and minister to people. But then also to have our confidence in him. Not in ourselves, not in our flesh, not in our ingenuity, but in the Lord, the good shepherd. Let's pray. Father in heaven and Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you identified yourself as the good shepherd and we can trust you. You watch over us. You love us. And we can be confident in you for ourselves and for others that we might not be with. I pray that we would go in this strength, that you are with us. And that we would see fruit in our lives and in others' others lives for your glory. As you bless the ministry of the word, as you keep us from sin, as you strengthen us from the word and help us to meditate on the great riches we have in salvation. Lord, build us up, comfort us, help us to trust in you. We need your help and we pray for it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.